let me just come back to the topic that we started things off on to kind of wrap that back up. So here is a scenario for the world. A, the U.S. military is weaker than we think, and the reason is it was defeated during COVID, it was defeated in Afghanistan, it has had cost overruns for things, uh, many things like the, as I mentioned, the Zumwalt, the littoral combat, littoral combat ship, the um, LCS, uh, the Ford carrier, uh, Ford class aircraft carrier, and, uh, you know, the F-35 and a bunch of other things. Uh, it... Has, there's a book called The Kill Chain by Christian Bros that talks about how China's won most of the military war games the U.S. has done. And conversely, on the Chinese side, if you compare um, how their military is operating, they have a single goal of getting Taiwan versus the U.S., which has to be able to fight anywhere in the world. Um, they have studied everything the U.S. has done, and they have um, optimized you know, area denial weapons just for... Um, neutralizing the carrier advantage. And they essentially have a single mission that they really care about. And uh, the U.S. Is, is spread all around the world and the U.S. doesn't care about Taiwan and so on and so forth. So you add up all these variables, there's probably more I could put into an essay. But, um, you know, China may not need to reunify by force. They might be able to get Taiwan to hold like some kind of referendum that votes for unification. They might, um, you know, because there's, there's a party on the island, the uh, Pan Blue um, KMT party that uh, wants to actually uh, reunify with um, with China, uh, or at least has, has people in the, who do. Um, and they have minority support right now, but, uh, you know, Hong Kong didn't have uh, much support for the Chinese state uh, mainland taking, taking over, but, um, uh, you know, they basically managed to force the matter. So it's possible that with a gun to their head, the Taiwanese proposed some kind of referendum or a referendum is proposed. And um, then we see what happens. And that's one possible method. Another thing is there's actually a fight and the U.S. just backs down and doesn't, doesn't get involved because, you know, it doesn't have the appetite for war. Or there's a fight and the U.S. actually gets involved and I think would lose. Um, and I think, you know, most many people who study this and look at it, the more you look at it, the less likely it looks like the U.S. would win because um, China's, China's not to be messed with. They're, they're, they're pretty strong and they're completely dedicated and they care about this. And the U.S. doesn't and hasn't had a peer competitor in a long time and hasn't been preparing for this title bout. And so, but when that happens, I think that's much more consequential in terms of the ripple effects than people think. Um, so whether it is a referendum or it's a, you know, a, a, a step back or it's an actual defeat, a few things happen. First is fiat money is backed by men with guns, right? Mm. So what happens when those men with guns retreat <laughs> or are defeated? That actually has ripple effects way beyond China. So what, what exactly would that mean, by the way? It would mean that China basically then has, has a like a Monroe Doctrine in Asia. Okay. So they are the big dog, especially in the South China Sea. And, you know, that might actually mean that, you know, as either a peace treaty or as a series of events, the U.S. might have to withdraw troops um, or or something. Sorry, could, they probably, could, you, could you just do a 15-second expansion on the Monroe Doctrine for people that don't that oh, yeah, not sure. know what that is? So Monroe Doctrine um, was articulated by James Monroe. It was more aspirational at the time, but basically it said European powers um, can't establish new colonies, I think, in the new world, and the U.S. would... Uh, basically, it said that the Western Hemisphere was America's domain, mm. that the European powers weren't welcome there, and that existing colonies they could maintain, but they couldn't do new stuff, and they couldn't stop people um, who had gotten independent and, and so on, right? And so, uh, essentially, it asserted that these that this was like America's domain. Don't come here, right? And uh, the U.S. didn't have the guns or the 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 horsepower to enforce that in, in um, I think 1823, they, uh, it was, it, it's something that says it's, it's a U.S. hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, so stay out. And uh, that something like that would be what the Chinese would do in the, after they basically either take Taiwan, defeat the U.S. in some way over there, they basically say, U.S. get out. Mm -hmm. And so that could mean everything from like shutting down bases in Korea and Japan, 
who would now see that as a provocation against China that just be in the US, right? Um, it could be something like, um, you know, more freedom of navigation patrols where the US, uh, that's almost a definite, like, the, like all these countries will try and do these like circles in the South China Sea to kind of, it's almost like doing um, the opening of 2034, which is uh, um, a book by the former, uh, by, by Stavridis, who, uh, Abner Stavridis, I may be pronouncing his name wrong, um, who's a, a very senior guy. I think he was former NATO Supreme Commander. Um, so senior guy, 2034 is another book, along with The Kill Chain by Christian Brose. Kill Chain by Christian Brose is, is fiction, uh, is nonfiction, but the, the 2034 is, um, is, is fiction. And he describes at the beginning that um, going in, doing these freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea with all these warships is like going and doing donuts, you know, on somebody's lawn, right? It's like, it's like intentionally provocative to show the Chinese, Hey, we're stronger, you know, et cetera. But it's one of those things where as the two curves are converging, the Chinese may not tolerate that much longer. Right. So whatever happens, I think it's likely the Chinese get like some kind of Monroe doctrine in Asia, just as their strength grows and the U S is, is kind of trending in the wrong direction. Um, I think that that is a recalculation of lots of things worldwide because the U.S. no longer becomes a global power. See, the hyperpower, the global power has to win everywhere at all times. Mm -hmm. The regional power just has to kind of win once, and that's easier, right? Mm -hmm. And simply just driving the U.S. out, that doesn't mean that they have to. I mean, the, the reason people will kind of talk about this stuff in a cartoon, like five-year-old kind of way. What do you mean? Like the U.S. is going to put troops in Minnesota, huh? You know, they're, they're going to invade D.C. Well, I'm going to fight them. Like, you know, mm -hmm. that's not exactly how it necessarily has to work. Um, you know, this when, when the Soviet Union lost the Cold War, that didn't mean that U.S. troops were in Moscow. What it did mean is that in sort of the three rings of Soviet empire, they lost their, uh, you know, all of the third world revolutionary stuff that they were funding that went to zero. They lost the Warsaw Pact, you know, their Eastern European client states, which they had invaded after World War II. Those all went independent and they lost big chunks of the core Soviet empire where the Baltics and, mm -hmm. you know, Kazakhstan and so on, all went independent. They were just left with Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. So now by analogy for the US, that outer ring is like places like Afghanistan um, or, you know, Iraq, uh, Crimea. Those are like the most, you know, like experimental territory. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the second ring is um, on a range. You put tai Taiwan, but then, you know, because Taiwan is like more now, you know, uh, touch and go. Um, you know, back to, you know, so Taiwan, um, Japan, South Korea, and the Western European satellites of NATO, right, which are like the Eastern European satellites. The way you know they're satellites of the U.S. is, did they give Snowden asylum? No? Okay, well, they're not actually sovereign and independent, right? Um, and uh, and then all the way back to the continental U.S. and like quasi-colonies like, you know, um, the, the there's various things like Guam and the Northern Marianas Islands and so on. And then and, and Canada is kind of sort of part of that. Um, so that's like levels of empire. And I think the US uh, getting pushback out of Taiwan, I don't know how much of it they lose right away, but first of all, it shows the US can be beaten again. It's not just COVID, it's not just Afghanistan, but now it's China um, and it's a peer competitor. Second, it shows that China, if you can beat the top, the champ, you are the champ. It doesn't matter that China didn't win everywhere. It means the U.S. lost and wasn't willing to fight. And it's not probably not going to fight again, or at least not going to fight again anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And so then China's a champ. It doesn't have to win everywhere. It just has to win in one spot. It's kind of like you knock out Mike Tyson. You don't have to beat everybody he's ever beaten or whatever. Right. Knock him out, right? Just talking psychologically, what does the day after look like? It means that the quote, you know, lots of scores around the world might get settled. You know, the Azerbaijan, Armenia type stuff might get settled in other places because the U.S. is no longer the traffic cop. If it didn't intervene there, where else is it going to intervene? Maybe five fights break out. Maybe the U.S. intervenes in one of them. Maybe none. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the reason that Saddam invaded Kuwait after, uh, you know, in 1991 is the U.S. was falling. It looked like all these things were moving around. Why doesn't he just take this country? And he, he got a little bit of what he thought was a go ahead implicitly from the U.S. ambassador mm -hmm. to Iraq at that time. 
Um, or at least that's 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 what I recall. I may, I may be incorrect about that, but that's what I recall. And so, but he was he was chin checked on that. The U.S. came in, and you know the, the Gulf War One happened. But in this new world, maybe there's a lot of little you know border conflicts that get resolved. Mm-hmm. And uh, then also, you know, in terms of how people are thinking about business, well, is U.S. government guarantee every shipping lane? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, that might actually move over to the Chinese now. See, there's some folks who believe that the Chinese can never field a blue water navy. I don't believe that's true. I think that, I mean, they went, they became the world's number one drone manufacturer. They've, they've gone zero to one in so many other things. They've built out, they build out everything. They, they also, by the way, have um, this massive shipping container industry um, and ship goods all over the world. And so it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch to me that they would accompany those with combat vessels to prevent privacy, piracy and, and to, to protect their, I mean, that's what the maritime belt and, and, uh, and, and the overland Silk Road um, are, uh, or, or basically Belt and Road are both a maritime channel and a, an overland channel. And so I have to assume that they have some budget for defense in there. I haven't read all mm-hmm. the Chinese defense documents. So, so at least some of that shipping, I think the, the next Chinese Navy, you know, takes over. And then now what happens to the dollar and other kinds of things? Well, full faith and credit of the U.S. government is now in question. And there's this, you know, foreign military defeat has historically um, been a real catalyst for domestic political strife and turmoil. You know, mm-hmm. like the the Russian um, outcome in World War One uh, helped us, as, as I mentioned, that McMeekin book on the Russian Revolution helped lead to the communist revolution there. And, you know, in the U.S., people are fighting over vaccines, they're fighting over uh, all kinds of things. And what's happening is the states and the feds are pulling apart. And in this scenario, which I don't say is 100%, but in this scenario, um, you know, there is an attempt at like a Bitcoin seizure bill, and like an executive order 6102, right? Because they may have printed money to fund this war. They may have printed money just to fund everything. Who knows? And this but time frame, I don't know, late 2020s, late 2020s, early 2030s. Okay. Right. I mean, think about how different the world is from, I mean, Bitcoin only came out in 2009. Yeah. Right. If you think about that, like yeah, that's incredible. not that long ago, right? Yeah. 12 years is a really long time yeah. in our age, right? Yeah. From a tech standpoint, you know, like the movement standpoint. So, yeah. Late 2020s, early 2030s, I could definitely see like some Bitcoin seizure bill being contemplated. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that could kick things off, right? Right. In some ways, we're like, you know, you can think of this as being similar. And I'm not the only person who said this, but being similar to like the 1840s or 1850s when there were lots of conflicts leading up to the civil war. It wasn't just something that just happened on, on a thing. It was like, there were lots of conflicts and there were attempts to resolve it within the system and so on. Eventually it kind of came to a head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that the next conflict looks like the American civil war of 1861 because the two groups are not geographically separated. Um, if it happens, it's more like total cyber war hmm. because the two groups are geographically separated or geographically uh, cheek by jowl, like the blue and red in different counties. Or mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't think this next one is going to be blue versus red in the same way. I think it's centralist versus decentralist. Mm. And the reason is that if there's high inflation, then it doesn't matter what you know ethnic group you are or what gender you are, your right. money is just being taken, right? And um, Bitcoin is your protection from that. And the government is trying to seize Bitcoin. It is a realigning event where there will be some people who side with the government because they side with the state and these mm-hmm. colors don't run, you know, patriot type, whatever you, I mean, yeah, statists, you know, like, but there'll be some folks who do, but the other side will be, uh, it's a different cut on coalitions. I think it's yeah. centralist, decentralist. I don't think it's traditional red, blue, but however you do it, Centralists and decentralists are going to be living near each other. It's going to be fractal. It's mm-hmm. going to be ideological as opposed to geographic. And so it'll be the super messy conflict if things go in this direction with like more like Bosnia or Indian partition or something like that. Mm-hmm. Everybody has guns. Um, 
and but it's lots of small scale. It's not tanks and stuff like that. That's kind of useless in, in this. It's just like a giant Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but with cyber war, with hacks of agencies, with all, all this crazy stuff kind of happening. Um, all, all these agencies, by the way, get hacked all the time today. You know, like OPM got hacked. All these things are getting hacked. Who's hacking them? I don't. I have no idea. It's like, you know, it's Russians, it's Chinese. People said the Chinese did the OPM hack, but all these government, you know, IT, it's completely insecure. Yeah. And it, I don't think it's getting any better. So you have this insane kind of thing where, um, you know, that, that's a scenario. Right? Now, let, where, let me ask, is there is there a socioeconomic axis here? Because I would assume that it would be the tend to be the wealthier that were trying to get their capital out of uh, predation by inflation. Or do you think this is, so this I is across the hierarchy? Yeah, it's. I think it's cross hierarchy because there's going to be institutional elites who are wealthy who um, are anti Bitcoin because they want to preserve their status within the U.S. you know establishment, and you know they they'd say something like, "Okay, we're going to issue new bucks and we're going to snapshot it on this time spot before the hyperinflation happened or whatever." You know, that's like. And pre- preserve the wealth structure that 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 was there beforehand. That's one way of doing it. So, so my um, other question here: if if they're thinking about seizing Bitcoin, presumably things are pretty bad. Wouldn't they be? They would have already seized other assets or increased taxation across other assets. All kinds classes. of bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This things start to get pretty negative, right? Yeah. Um, but but this is the thing: is um, I'm not saying it's 100, percent but this is a scenario where. Uh, CCP and BTC both win, like really, really win. We don't, we're not projecting like, you know, one of the things that you learn in tech is that your winners are bigger than you expect them to be mm-hmm. by like maybe multiple orders of magnitude. GitHub, for example, like how huge is that? And mm-hmm. like, I did not think that many people would be developers when it came out in, in 2008, like Git was like this really arcane kind of thing. And mm-hmm. GitHub was like an arcane tool. You need to know what hashes were and all this stuff. It, but it's like a multi-billion dollar exit, you know, mm-hmm. GitLab, multi-billion. And, um, you know, if you, if you really take seriously what where where China's going? It's got like 10x in front of it. Bitcoin has like 10x, maybe 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 100x, but at least 10x I think in front of it. Mm-hmm. Like, if you really take that seriously, that, that's 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 a very disruptive force, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we aren't really gaming out what the world looks like when these strong forces are magnified 10x. You know, push comes to shove and just things fall over. You know, mm-hmm. things things reconfigure themselves, and. Um, Anyway, um, that's the scenario. Now, after that happens, if that happens, like, you know, then America is in just civil conflict. The EU probably is in some kind of rump state disunion where, um, you know, French and Germans stick together, but there's Scotland and Catalonia and Sardinia and the Visegrads that all basically want to break away from the EU in different ways, have broken away in some ways already, like Visegrad's kind of setting its own immigration policy in some ways. Mm-hmm. Visegrad's like the, the block of Hungary and uh, um, I think the Czech Republic and so on. Mm-hmm. Basically, that, those kind of four countries over there. What steps is the gap? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, there are a lot of folks in the decentralized world, but I think actually India is kind of a dark horse in some ways, not mm-hmm. as a, you know, I think that they can deter China militarily from invading. Um, but I think that as potentially a large, relatively stable country um, in that environment, uh, it'll be, I think it's underrated. Um, yeah. I think I- India is underrated in such a world where, you know, where, where it ends up is you have this giant Chinese super state that is um, the one intact giant country out there. And then India might be the second intact giant country. And then everything else is like tiny Western principalities and so on. It's almost back to the future. So like this is before- the fragmentation and dissolution of nation state, a la sovereign individual thesis, but not in the East. Not in the East. Exactly. So the future is a centralized 
East and a decentralized West. Okay. And wow. the thing is that if China wins, because here's the thing, China, <clears throat> if like, it, you know, it did the great firewall, right? Mm-hmm. It did, it did things. People thought the internet was totally free and, you know, you know, things would be in front of it, but China didn't just do the great firewall. They also banned social media and built their own. And that's why Xi Jinping was not able to be deplatform uh, like Trump was. Mm-hmm. You know, if they could just hit a button and put them through a, a floor like a trap door, Facebook or Twitter would do that. But China didn't do that. They're like, send your manufacturing here. We're not going to send our social media there. Right. And you know what? It's hard to argue. Like with hindsight, at the time, you could argue they're not being free and so on, right? But basically, the true. Do, here's the thing also, and I'll, and I'll qualify this. I think the states that can ride the tiger of cryptocurrency in 2040 or 2050, I think that's, that is going to be the big fight like between the, the decentralized world and the centralized world. Mm. And I think India is kind of in the middle where it's got pieces of both. And I think it'll be the balancing point. It's like an interesting hybrid. It's, it's strong potential there. Mm. Um, I'm more bullish on Indians than India specifically, because those Indians would radiate out all over the world as they already done. Mm-hmm. And so that's like an interesting thing where China is becoming more like focused as like a fist within China, mm-hmm. you know, um, because at least in those parts of the world where China doesn't have hard power, the um, Chinese nationals are finding it harder to migrate and move over there. Um, you know, the Meng Wanzhou case uh, where, you know, uh, the this executive at Huawei was basically taken prisoner. And you can argue whether it was real or not, but she was like under house arrest in three years in, in Canada. And the Chinese government took two people as a kind of prisoner in, in return. And there was just recently like a hostage swap. Um, that's like the kind of thing the sovereign individual predicted where citizens were being taken mm-hmm. hostage. So Chinese nationals may not have as much free travel as they did before. We're already seeing some of that coming back as Meng Wanzhou is the F1 visa stuff. Um, there's Chinese students at American universities under suspicion of espionage and so on. All of that stuff, um, you know, rightfully or wrongly, by the way, because most of them are, I'm sure, are innocent, uh, vast majority. But it is something, you know, NPR reported on that where, you know, Chinese students were being suspected of espionage. And, um, so you put that together and you essentially have a world where China may win the next 10 or 20 years of relative stability because it has a highly competent, ruthless state that has managed to ban Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. We saw that, mm-hmm. right? Like we like the graph isn't, it's not like hype. Like they managed to do it. We saw a hundred X a hash drop. That's not yeah. fake, right? Yeah. So the they did manage to ban Bitcoin mining. They um, did manage to set the Great Firewall. They have their own, like, they are the exception to the rule in this century. And one way of thinking about the 20th century, by the way, is that the U.S. was the most internally decentralized in a centralizing century. That's it. You know, for example, there's this book called Three New Deals, which basically says that what the U.S. did was actually similar to, and was known to be similar at the time, this is a pre-Holocaust and so on, but it was known to be similar time to what the Nazis were doing, to what the communists were doing. Okay. Uh-huh. Three New Deals, good book. Um, and there's other stuff, lots of contemporary literature on this. It wasn't that the US was sui generis and you know totally distinct from what the rest of the world was doing. Everybody was centralizing and collectivizing and seizing farmland and, and so on and so forth, right? Nationalizing all this stuff. The Soviets and the PRC did it the most, right? Europe and India somewhere in the middle, and the US the least, but it still did it a lot. Like that's the entire federal regulatory state, right? That is um, the, the basically the de facto repeal of the 10th Amendment under FDR. That's the ban on gold. That's the National Industrial Recovery Act. That's, if you read Amity Schles's book, The Forgotten Man, that goes into some of this, okay? Um, but basically FDR did highly centralize the economy. Um, and that's why, you know, you people have seen that graph sometimes in tax rates at 90%, marginal tax rates at 90%. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, the foundations, Ford found all those foundations were basically ways to get the money off the books of rich guys. You know, he, he didn't, FDR did not like Andrew Mellon. He 
fought Andrew Mellon. You can Google that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and other rich guys who were his potential competitors for office, they were encouraged in various ways to put their money into foundations so they didn't compete with FDR. So, you know, in other countries, those rich guys were just killed or jailed and their property outright stolen. In the US, it was just kind of like forced out of their hands. Mm. Um, but that's kind of like this centralizing thing. Yet the thing is that there was still private property. There was still mm. some degree of rule of law and so on. And the US came up with a hybrid that in an age of centralizing technology and centralizing ideologies and mass media and mass production that were, it was reflexive, it was pushing the centralizing technology selected for centralizing ideologies because you know a few people had choke points over, over this whole thing. In that age, the US maintained the most internally decentralized system, mm-hmm. the most capitalist. And that over time turned out to be the hybrid that um, generated the most wealth and thus the most power. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, China may be the opposite. It may be the most internally centralized in a decentralizing era. Interesting. And that internal internal centralization preserves the most stability and maybe the least territorial conflict when everybody else is going through this great decentralization. Hmm. So I think that is a realistic possibility. That is now, super, what, super interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead sorry. Now, I, I think that India is probably somewhere in the middle where it is, it's also on a civilizational upward arc. The patriotism is real there. Like in the sense of when you look at the stats, you look at the numbers, these are Indian China have some of the highest, like would fight for your country type stuff, you know, going on. Whereas Japan is like some of the lowest is like 10% and just in the middle is like 40 or 30%, but dropping Europe is also pretty low. If I could ask you something about China before you branch into India, the, so what is the relevance of a centralized CCP or Chinese state in a world that's ultimately decentralizing? Because again, I, we would assume that it starts to rot as it's the number one dog in the room and there's there's less accountability to customer preferences. And the other thing I was thinking about is we've already drawn out or teased out this connection between the integrity of private property rights and wealth creation. So it seems like the decentralized world would just get rapidly more wealthy than China. So in the long yeah, run- Yeah, it's going to have potentially way more conflict. Got you. So what long run do you see you see that dynamic would Ch- the Chinese I think that's eventually the, fall to the decentralizing trend? I do, but I think that's like 50 years. Got it. You know, I think it's a long time because that's like that's like next next. Yeah. You know, the thing is that those those states that come out of that decentralization and that survive also will have to avoid becoming Chinese colonies. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to evolve decentralized defense, which may look like some combination of like, it's going to look completely different from the Western way of war of the 20th century. It's not aircraft carriers and so on. It's actually some interesting fusion of spec ops and terrorism, of cyber warfare and hacking and assassinations and drones, you know, like basically it is is something where um, versus a gigantic centralized Chinese state, all defense looks like terrorism. Digital guerrilla like, warfare. Something. Yeah, because you imagine in 2035 that like Chinese drone armada coming towards you. Like you can't fight that in 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 the open. Most most countries can't. Like yeah. um, that's this really form like they're I mean, just think as I mentioned, how much stuff is made in China. When they put their country to like cranking out military stuff, that's really scary. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's you know they're they're and and so you know the um the thing is that pe- people right now are very overconfident in the current state of affairs mm-hmm. where you know but it's it's it like the US dollar is weak and the US military is weak in ways that people aren't really fully thinking about. Now, you know, the funny thing is that like if you take all of this stuff seriously, you know, as I said, almost anything, anything good, you can overcorrect with, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, and in fact, basically, this is why I, you know, I would never call myself a maximalist uh, on, on, on even freedom maximalist. Well, yeah, maybe I've said freedom maximalist at some point. I know you've Mm -hmm. said that. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, you know, I don't want to be like a stupid gotcha, like never call yourself a maximalist. Oh, I call yourself freedom maximalist. (laughs) Uh, 
let me let me rephrase. I'm more a freedom maximalist than a particular technology or coin maximalist. Mm -hmm. But really what I am, and I actually came up with a term for this, I'm an optimalist. That is say, try to do what is optimal across variables with a defined objective function. We're trying to optimize something mm, versus just jacking some variable all to the max. And the reason is, as an optimalist, you have some stopping criteria, some limiting principle. Mm. Whereas for any kind of maximalist, um, too much is never enough. Mm -hmm. And any good thing can be taken to enough of extreme that it's bad. Mm -hmm. Like the dose makes a poison. I don't know if you've heard that, right? Like Coca-Cola, yes. you, you, whatever, anything you can think of, you take enough that you will die. If for yes, me, yes. Maybe a very large amount, right? I'd like to, I'd like to and, just throw in here that, uh, and you're probably right, maybe maximalist is too strong of a word, but the limiting factor in my view in freedom maximalism is the property of others, right? Like you are free to do anything that you want so long as you do not transgress against the property. Yes. Yes. And, and I do agree with that. And I think that works in a civilized society and so on. However, when you're in an anarchic state of nature and you have a group of, you know, highly libertarian individuals and you have a tight knit tribe with a leader that operates as one force, then each of these guys don't need to cooperate and they can all get picked off one by one versus mm -hmm. this tribe. Hmm. And so like the, um, the true state of nature type stuff is not something that we've been, I mean, libertarianism works within a system where libertarianism can work, mm -hmm. but when that system doesn't exist, you're basically back to like tribal warfare. And that's why we have these instincts to like group into tribes. Interesting. Um, yeah. Now, you, by the way, you can get there. You can get there from libertarianism, which is you're effectively signing a contract to be part of this tribe, right? Which usually involves right? you, abdicating some of your freedoms. Exactly. It's like yeah. you, it's like you contract in, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to give some of my freedom. I'm going to join this tribe for mutual protection. Okay, and I have yes. to wear a he headset. You know, whatever, all this stuff, right? Yes. So that's how it'll happen. I think you get. It's like unbundling and rebundling, right? Mm -hmm. When basically. Bitcoin breaks all incompetent states mm. or states that both if, if they're if they're incompetent and coercive, then people opt out and it's going to be this huge conflict. But if there's there's a sense of you know binding, mm -hmm. then Bitcoin isn't is fine because you know people feel like the state is giving them something for what they're giving it and so on, right? Like right. the social contracts, so there's still a sense of society and community. You know? So this is so the, it's like my thought on monarchy then actually, because you'd shift back towards uh, those states that are rendering valuable services you would contract with. Those that are not, you would refuse. Yeah, but but in monarchy, not all kings are equal. It's like you can be a CEO and you can be the CEO of Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, there'll be people who are this the the quote king, but they, you know, king is, you know, there's, there's like ranks, right? There's like mm -hmm. king and like, duke and earl and count and whatever right yeah. so the um the ceo or the leader or whatever term we use of a hundred person or thousand person town is not that of a million is not that of a 10 million or or, or, mm -hmm. or so on and is is not that of the 1.4 billion person chinese super state drone armada crazy thing you know that mm -hmm. that they're that they're building so, you know, the, the problem is that um, what I think you're going to see is something where states want to try to porcupine themselves so they become indigestible to this gigantic, mm -hmm. you know, thing. And, you know, I'm projecting out this future, by the way, where people are like, what about the U.S. military? You know, well, it, it'll probably protect you. I should say protect. I was going to say protect the U.S. homeland, but that's not even necessarily the case if there's civil conflict there, you know, because one side may, you know, any civil conflict is something where foreign powers tend to get involved. Mm -hmm. You know, that didn't happen in the past, but if there's like nuclear weapons and so on, people might get involved. Who knows? Okay. They may, it may be something where the people decide to just try to stay out of it because Americans are crazy. Who the heck knows? Um, but I, I, I do think that um, people just sort of projecting the current world out and thinking it's basically going to be the same are not really thinking about 
these sheer stressors on it that are already really strong and then bumping them up 10x, you know, plus the mismanagement in the US, it's not obvious that the whole thing like, you know, stays together. Right. Um, yeah. We, we, and this is why it's a scenario. Let's call it, let's call it sci-fi fictional scenario. I'm not saying <laughs> that I think that is exactly what's going to happen. Um, I can see other kinds of outcomes. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's one outcome. I think you're very astute in that people tend to have a lot of inertia with their thinking, right? Whatever it is, is just going to sort of carry forward in a slightly varied form. But I think it was Stalin that there's uh, decades where nothing happens. Lenin. And then, yeah. Let, or, decades where nothing happens and there's day, and there's weeks where decades happen. Exactly. So, and that tends to be the norm of, of history, right? Just there's mm -hmm. periods of great upheaval and it certainly feels like we're close to one. That's a very interesting thesis because um, I had typically just saw Bitcoin bankrupting the nation state and creating purely decentralized world, but I hadn't considered the, the centralizing force of the CCP as a counterswing to that. Yeah, and now let me let me project out. This is now much more fraught projecting out further, but I, mm -hmm. but let me say a few things further. So, um, the the thing is that uh, China's amazing at hard power, and they're amazing at like physical stuff and management, but they have historically been effectively an intellectual software importer. Like they say, Buddhism and communism are national operating systems in a sense. I know I'm kind of stretching the point, but you know, yeah. that, that were imported, right? So like world historically great manufacturing and, and you know, physical goods and hard power now potentially, mm -hmm. but that's, that's like kind of, you know, they, they're not great at whether you call it foreign language propaganda or soft power, they're not great at that. Okay. So um, see the thing that was interesting with the US versus the USSR is, it mostly squared up symmetrically. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and the U.S.S.R. were um, is tank on tank, plane on plane, ship on ship, like that. You know. Yeah. But the decentralized world versus China will be asymmetric. It will be, you know, um, cyber warfare versus this giant centralized AI, you know, tracking Skynet-ish thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it will be uh, cryptocurrency versus, you know, their CBDC, if this world comes about, okay? Mm -hmm. It will be migration and mobility versus, you know, they have this um, hukou system. Uh, let me see if I pronounce it right. Um, it's like, um, basically, it's control of internal migration, right? It's like an internal passport. It's like, it's like as if you needed a passport to move to Texas or something, okay? Right. It's kind of a way for them to manage because you know there's all this internal migration there they want to make sure that there's enough houses there that prices don't spike all that type of stuff right mm -hmm. um so like that hukou system versus like global migration and it'll be hard power versus the soft power of of you know media and convincing and so on it'll be everybody tracked and identified versus the pseudonymous economy this is i think the decentralization versus centralization is the um capitalism versus communism of the 21st century, but the argument for centralization will be that it is more stable. It's less innovative, mm -hmm. but there will be both. I mean, basically the decentralized world will have more downside and more upside, mm -hmm. more chaos, right? More opportunities in some ways, like more opportunities for ambitious people in some ways, mm -hmm. but also something where a lot of crazy stuff is happening, right? Sure. Probably if more violence, you know, more more disorganized violence. Yes. Um, whereas the Chinese state is organized violence, centralized violence. They're distinct, mm -hmm. you know. So, in general, like societies that have lots of disorganized violence tend to be poor at organized violence and vice versa. Mm -hmm. If you have lots of mafia and guys running around, I mean, one possible. Let me let me say something else, which I think is you know another potential scenario. You know how in two thousand eight, the bailouts were this totally aberrant thing, you know, and then they became um, a tool of policy. Yep. Right. Um, and it was something that was, oh my God, $787 billion. That number was marked in everybody's brains, right? 787 yeah. billion. Now they print that before breakfast. Yeah. And that's not even a discussion. There's not, 
uh, have you seen an NYT or even Wall Street Journal front page no, on where all the totally normalized? Yeah, it's been totally normalized, right? Yeah. So this thing that was totally aberrant has become normalized. And the thing is that um, here's something I fear will become normalized. Do you remember? There's actually quite a few videos of these of like people like surrounding cars last year. And then sometimes people would drive through or sometimes they wouldn't drive through and their windows would get busted and the guy would be pulled out and like crazy stuff. This would be happening on highways. This would be happening um, on on uh, on busy roads. You remember all those videos? Was it like the BLM stuff? Was it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. During the yeah. riots last year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. So um, there's, there's a scenario where when the police have been abolished, <laughs> And I know there's some backlash against that now, and so but but in San Francisco, you're seeing a trial run. It's it is possible, by the way, that there's that some of this pulls back. You know, this is this is just one scenario, as I said. But um, you're also seeing quite a lot of this stuff. It's not it's not as headline as last year. It's almost like you know, Bitcoin goes to the moon and it comes back down, but where it where it is is much higher than it was before. Mm -hmm. The baseline level of just random chaos and violence in the US is significantly higher than it was in 2019. For sure. Right. And so if you believe that this is something which, you know, just like Bitcoin is on a four-year clock, mm -hmm. you know, that this will surge again to a new level of insanity around 2024, quite possible, right? Then this is on a, a cycle where it's like getting like insaner, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in 2030, what does a drive from San Francisco to LA look like? <laughs> is it having, do you have a chance of rando surrounding your car? You do in South Africa. That's what's happened there. It's gradually had that happen, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a, you know, like what I'm doing is just projecting something that, we see and we recognize as aberrant now into something that becomes more normalized and routine over time, the frog boils slowly, as happened with bailouts and many other things over the 2010s. Wow. Um, very logically coherent and scary at the same time. What do you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and okay. that's, yeah, go ahead. How do you <laughs> try to leave it on somewhat of a high note here? How do you think about? preparations for this or general advice so in this kind of scenario see the thing is like um like that's actually mad max right yeah yeah or where the thing is south africa is kind of like mad max already in some ways you know if you want to preview south africa venezuela it's already mm -hmm. mad max right you know um the <laughs> the thing is that's that like it's exciting in a movie but it really sucks in real life yeah you know and because you know you're risking your life over something that's really undramatic, like you know driving. It's not. It's not like there's some grand cause you're fighting for. You're just driving along, and suddenly some crazy guy smashes in your window. It's like encountering some lunatic on on the streets. You know, who's high on meth, and you know, like that's a no-win situation. You don't get fifty experience points for defeating him in a bag of gold. <laughs> like, it's just yeah, it's just just a bad, just a bad scenario, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, basically, your your massive win is just getting back to normal, right? Yeah. And so this is the thing: is that when you know, in in computers, this is like this. In, in China, this is like this. A lot of things is like this. Uh, in management, it's like this. You know, for example, in management, you have product orgs versus functional orgs. And whenever you're in one, uh, a product org, it's like, you know, Google Maps versus Gmail versus Google search are all divided. But a functional org is, it's here's a software group and here is the um, design group and here is the marketing group and whatever, right? Yeah. And whatever thing you do there, there's gonna be a tension between those. And the same, same with centralization and decentralization. When you're centralized, and especially if it's incompetent and centralized, people want freedom, they want to break away, they want to decentralize. Then they decentralize and they get decentralization good and hard mm -hmm. and it overcorrects. It doesn't just like, it doesn't just like rewind a little bit. It goes into a new thing mm. where it shatters into a thousand pieces and overcorrects. And then people have chaos and then do you know what they want? They want order. Right. And then it's basically like, who will reunify the warring clans into a new thing, into a new stable state, 
right? It doesn't have to, doesn't necessarily look the same as it did in the old, right? But it is, you know, like the, this coalition start forming to try to restore order. Mm-hmm. And so central, right? And so what is scarce is what, what, what people want when, when there's um, totalitarianism, as in the 20th century, people wanted freedom. Mm-hmm. What I think this century is going to be about is um, when there's anarchy, people want leadership. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I'm saying here, by the way, is I am, you know, like in 2013, if you go back and look at like the video that I did for, this is one of the first like public videos I did for startup school, right? I was able to, I think, forecast a lot of what happened in the 2010s. And did you you see that video? I haven't seen it. Okay. It's called Silicon Valley's Ultimate Exit. I was denounced in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, eight years ago for that, right? That's a good sign. Um, but it's also, yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah, but it's also praised by, you know, who, who we call the Bitcoin, you know, type people, crypto, web three, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call them type people back then. We didn't have a name for it, but let's say the, you know, open source, the, the genuine kind of freedom loving, you know, tech folks. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that I, I think I was able to successfully identify at the time, the trends I could see were, these dark clouds were growing around tech, that this backlash was happening, that um, they would be able to use the state against us and that we wouldn't be able to out, out-compete the state. So we'd have to become mobile and we'd have to exit mm-hmm. and we'd have to figure out how to build jurisdictions of our own. And we're underway on a lot of that, right? Yeah. Like Miami and Texas, the um, the tech clash happened. A lot of that stuff happened, right? So. Um, in some ways where I am today, and at the time I also mentioned Bitcoin, I said, Bitcoin is a big one and so on. Xi Jinping had just taken office. Nobody knew exactly what he was going to do. It's hard to project out like a radical shift for China. Trump was still two or three years out. Right. So it wasn't obvious what was going to happen there. Um, but, but at least, so I didn't, I didn't make predictions on those things, but on this axis, I think I know essentially, um, people who think Bitcoin wins, like, what does that mean? It's a radically, 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 radically different world. Mm-hmm. It's not just the current world, but it's like, you know, Bitcoin rather than US dollars at Starbucks or something. It is a totally different yeah. world. If, you know, and so in some ways I'm seeing out to what happens then and planning for then. So like seeing out to the tech lash and seeing that that backlash was going to happen, which many people were denying that it was happening at the time, mm-hmm. you know, because it was small at the time, but I could see it growing like a seed investment. I could see this fire growing. Um, I didn't. I didn't predict, for example, that the wokeification would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I didn't predict that is those companies were run by strong-willed founders. What I didn't understand at the time was that none of them were either willing or able to, or the timing wasn't right to make the kinds of ideological arguments that you need to push back. Like an non-obvious point, by the way, on this is, um, you know, when you talk about like full stack, like a full stack engineer, have you heard that concept before? Mm, Of course. The the full stack includes your moral foundations. Mm -hmm. If you have outsourced your moral foundations to, you know, NYT or, or Harvard or whatever, then they can basically use those moral arguments on you to argue that you are illegitimate and bad and enough of your employees will listen to them and then they've got root access. That's actually the root. The root right. layer is the moral justification for what you're doing. Yes. And if you can't articulate that, and I mean like right then and there, you know, we're no longer in an environment where, you know, you don't need a moral justification for Dropbox, okay? Um, which is which is fine, by the way, it's a good technology, I'm not beating it up, but like, that's something like store files or whatever, that's, you know, it's like a utility, you know? Mm-hmm. But for anything, you know, anything else, um, that's, that's a little bit more outside the lines, you do need a moral justification for it. And there was unable to, there people were unable to present a moral justification for Google or Facebook, et cetera, that was able to stand up against this. That part I didn't expect. But I did get correct that um, there was a sub demographic within tech that would rally behind cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that has happened. Yeah. Okay. So, so now with, with this, um, 
projecting out Bitcoin, if Bitcoin wins, then it's a consent-based world for those areas where Bitcoin wins. Mm -hmm. And if it's a consent-based world where Bitcoin wins, then you have to have some really awesome leaders to put Humpty Dumpty back together and right. rebundle functional states. Yeah. Competent leadership. Right. Competent leadership. Now, yeah. do, what does it look like on the other end of that? That whole natural selection process for those countries that do not become Chinese satellites, because many of them, by the way, will choose that. And the reason is they'll get stability. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. You just parachute in the Chinese AI surveillance state. And um, have you seen the 2014 Robocop? Uh, I don't. Maybe. I'm not sure. Go, go back and watch that trailer again. Okay. For the 2014 yeah. Robocop. Um, and there's a scene with a hypothetical, like this is, you know, before the, you know, like the U.S. military, the gleam came off, but hypothetical, like U.S. military occupation of Iran in like 2030 or something. Mm -hmm. And it showed these like drone soldiers. It was actually a pretty, I should say good, interesting vision of what like drone warfare might look like in an urban environment. Right. Um, so that's like the pacification. You would essentially have some local leader that would invite them in to go in. Now, of course, that comes with all kinds of strings. You yeah. know, you're basically a Chinese colony. And the problem is, you know, some people will say, oh, well, look, today the U.S. is blowing up the Middle East and the Chinese are building up Africa. And I think that's true, by the way. That's worth acknowledging. It's not something most Americans really think about is that the U.S.'s effect on much of the world over the last 20 or 30 years has been much more negative um, than it was in, in some ways, I would argue, even during the Cold War. During the Cold War, you know, back, you know, Pinochet was better than Castro. Um, West Germany was better than East Germany. South Korea was better than North Korea. Taiwan was better than China, even if South Korea and Taiwan and Chile had, quote, right-wing dictators. Mm -hmm. Those capitalist dictators were better than the corresponding communist dictators that were on offer. You know, right. if, the choice, if the choice is between Pinochet and Castro, Pinochet, if the choice is between like um, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao, Chiang Kai-shek. For the same know. same reason, they're more decentralized, right? Yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally, you know, you, know, you can argue that you couldn't see that at the time. I think you could, yeah. but certainly in retrospect, like those countries were not just richer, but protected human rights better, mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally, like, you know, you you're still gulagged in, in Castro's state. You're not mm -hmm. to the same extent in, in Chile. Um, and you're, 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 you know, Taiwan is um, like the results speak for themselves, right? Yeah. You know, revolution is judged by its fruits, as people would say. Um, and so, you know, here, the, the, so my point is that the U.S., um, I think, on balance was a force for good during the Cold War. Uh, and even right after the Cold War, it helped Estonia and these Eastern European countries get on their feet. But that's kind of the last good thing it did in foreign policy. Because mm -hmm. everything else since then has been like wars and bombings and so on, a very poor and uncertain outcome. Whereas China, by necessity, has taken a very economics-focused you know, approach where they're not trying to tell countries how to change their ideological system. That's not their thing anymore. Third world revolution is very Mao era. No, they're just trying to build up the economy. And, you know, how do we put some Chinese advisors there to build your roads or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but in the absence of a U.S. check on China, just think about how badly the U.S. behaved after the USSR was out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Abroad, at least. Yeah. Right? And at home in some ways. Yeah. Right. Um, but especially abroad, China without the U.S. in the picture is a completely different animal. <laughs> Hard right? power taken so, to its fullest. Full to its fullest without like, you know, because the U.S. It's, it still has that gossamer of soft power and so on. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when, when there's like no pretenses made. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it's a different thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, like. This is not, um, it's not an optimistic scenario, but, and, and it sounds bad in some ways, and it is bad in some ways, uh, but it's also something where on the other side of it, see, the thing is that on a 20 plus year time frame, 
by driving out all this decentralization, it's almost like, uh, you know, the thing with the um, kids and allergens and, you know, if they, this is, this is somewhat, uh, um, apocryphal, but, you know, supposedly if they're, they're not exposed to it, then they, oh, yeah. Uh, compromises you know, your immunity kind of deal. You're under yeah, like or yeah, exactly. Like if you're not exposed to allergens, you have worse allergies. I actually haven't seen um, like a systematic analysis. Maybe this is actually well established, or maybe it's not. Um, I've actually haven't dug into the research on it to see if that's there. But you, you've heard that quite a bit, right? Yeah. Like, oh, the kids need it. So uh, I think it is fair to say that if China preserves short and even medium term stability with this, they're not going to be able to stamp out the internet globally um because satellites still exist it's just too much of a thing to like invade everywhere or whatever there mm -hmm. will be a, a free world a decentralized world even if it's just india and india's allies like uh, china's not going to invade india with a billion people a nuclear weapon state that's that's still put together you know mm -hmm. um at least i don't in this scenario i don't think that that would happen um and so i think a free world will exist uh and 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 then the question is, um, what kinds of technologies evolve in that world that China can't avail itself of? For example, one thing I don't think people have thought through is that um, I think all backends go blockchain eventually for mm -hmm. security reasons. And here's why: um, government IT developers suck at security; their systems are constantly hacked. It's all nonsense. Even the, even if they had good intent. Their process to become secure is a checklist of bureaucratic items. It's like an ISO process, right? Okay, um, and it's like, do you have a chief security officer? Have you done X? Have you done Y? Right. Uh, whereas the alternative is actually in front of us. The the people who are like combat veterans in cybersecurity are all of this smart contract and Bitcoin and blockchain developers, because. Hmm. On a daily basis, if their code doesn't work, funds are stolen. Mm. That's like fighting with live rounds. Okay. Right. And the thing is also that compromises in the crypto space often lead to immediate debits of funds, sort of detectable. Whereas if there's not crypto, because basically once a, an attacker has access to the private keys, they want to move the money usually right away, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, other kinds of intrusions where they get into your system and you don't know when they've gotten in and they might've been there forever. And you don't know exactly what they got to. So, you know, one thing you might want to do in the future, for example, is in every directory of your file system, you put a thousand dollars of cryptocurrency um, on any production machine. Just a honeypot. Yeah. So basically, no. well, not yeah, honeypot or basically be like, look, you can take this just, just, you know, like by taking it, you've disclosed that you're in mm -hmm. and you're not like screwing us with other stuff, right? You have mm -hmm. to essentially, because right now people will hack data and they'll try to send, sell that data. You know, okay, I'm, I've got a 50 million Facebook profiles. How much will you pay me? That's all like some, you know, rug bizarre kind of process. Mm -hmm. if they could just get the money. They might be, might, might do it. It's like a bug bounty that's built into the directory, right? Mm. But here's, here's my point though, is the systems and the processes that are being built for this, um, there's a site called rekt.news where you can see all the smart contract hacks that have happened. And that is leading to funding for formal verification, for uh, you know, new chains like Solana that have that use like Rust. Um, all, all kinds of stuff is being built in to both do error checking and to throw computation and to throw language constructs at the problem of making code secure because it's now real money on the line. It's just a different problem. It's a different problem space. Security mm -hmm. actually really matters. Money is hacked right away. So this is going to result in not only a generation of combat veterans in cybersecurity, but also something where all code eventually goes on chain because any not every every blockchain backend effectively has a bug bounty on. Mm -hmm. If you can hack it, you can move the funds. If you can move the funds, you are rich. You can sell the funds, right? Right. So while imperfect, the price, the market cap of a coin is a rough measure of its security. Yes. Um, the reason I say rough is we can all name you know lots of coins that you know aren't 
aren't good and still have high market caps. But my my hypothesis, strong hypothesis, is actually we haven't. I mean, there haven't been enough hackers who have looked at those chains to try to hack them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this could. makes sense. You're embedding the incentive to hack the security framework directly into the framework. So it's constantly conditioned um, to be resilient. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, if this thesis is true, then one of the biggest arbitrage, I should probably tweet this or whatever. I'll give away this alpha <laughs> because it's kind of hard to exploit alpha. But one of the um, biggest potential extant arbitrage opportunities in cryptocurrency may be um, hacking change with high market cap, but low developer traction hmm. because they're probably less secure than others. Yeah. So, um, but what that means though, then is all code that can live on a chain does because um, it's a secure backend where, uh, you know, you at least have some signal that it hasn't been hacked over a five-year period of X market cap. And that is debilitating to the centralized state cybersecurity because model? because they are reliant upon um, they're they're not putting something out there to be constantly attacked, right? They they have yeah. root, right? It's a different model, which is strong on some dimensions, weak on others. Um, it's it's a, it's more fragile in some ways because you flip that and you basically. If they have one bug, the whole system, you could potentially get it. Now, like this is something where it's asymmetric. They're going to have extremely good developers. They'll, they will do isolation of their own. And the thing that's tricky is that with the CBDC, they've shown an ability to take some of the innovation and copy some pieces, not all, certainly. Mm-hmm. They don't have you know some of the key things. Um, but so it'll be interesting to see what happens on that. Um, but that I think is the, like, it's possible that, uh, you know, this century is like centralized China versus, um, like decentralized developers with many of the latter from India. Um, I think that's, that's like, I I know it sounds crazy because (laughs) it's, it seems far away from like the present moment. Um, but in 1913, the dominant player was the British empire. Yeah. And then in you know the next 30 something years, the Americans, the Russians, the Germans, and the Japanese all slugged it out. And then you know it's like like the final four. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like (laughs) you get two and the Americans and Russians slug it out. And the last year's champ didn't actually make it out of the first round. (laughs) Um the uh nice high note, I think, to end it on (laughs) after some very mind expanding and potentially uh, terrible look into the future. But Balaji, man, thank you so much. This has been, I know I've asked a lot of your time here. Let me let me give one positive set of things because I, I, I don't want to end it on a downer, right? So the good thing about that decentralization is all the good things of the sovereign individual. But more than that, I think it allows for the sovereign collective. The you know, the reason that that decentralization is happening is that the U.S. and largely the West are no longer really organic countries. They aren't, you know, people of shared values and aspirations, partly because of um, just, you know, the it's partly technology because, you know, people are uh, living apart and, um, you know, they, they have more in common with someone 3,000 miles away than next door. But even in the year 2000, I think Robert Putnam published Bowling Alone, mm-hmm. uh, year 2019, and before tech really got underway. And he was observing that this anomie, this, this rootlessness had already happened, right? So what, what's going to happen, I think, is rebundling into sovereign collectives with organic leaders and cultures, and it'll be messy, but you will see some amazing flowerings and I think some amazing city-states and what I call network states mm-hmm. being built out of this. So I think, you know, uh, you will see, the, my progression is tech companies, the years, the, the 2000s, crypto protocols, 2010s, startup cities, 2020s, network states, 2030s. Hmm. And so like new cities, new countries, like this, this era of stasis that we've been living through 
I think that goes away. I think technology radically advances. I mean, during the Renaissance in the Wild West, when there were periods of chaos, that's actually when, and, and, and decentralization in small states, that's actually when a lot of innovation happened, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there's a lot of positivity that I think will come out of this. It will be more upside, more downside. But I think most of the people who are into tech, uh, into crypto, into Bitcoin, into decentralization, I know there are different things, but overlapping, um, think about the positive aspects, reasonably so. And most people who are out of it don't think it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Or if they're out of it, they don't think either China is strong or that Bitcoin is strong. And they certainly aren't projecting both of them together. Right. right. And the Chinese aren't projecting Bitcoin ramping at the same time. I understand the Chinese. Obviously, some Chinese are very smart and are capable of it. But let's say right. the Chinese state is only projecting their own ramp. And Bitcoin holders are only projecting their ramp. And NYT folks are projecting no ramp. So no one is projecting these two corners and this one going down. So that, that's what this scenario looks like. You could, the other scenarios are, are kind of obvious ones, like the Bitcoin maximal scenario is just the sovereign individual. That's just this ramp. Yeah. And if you read, you know, China stuff, it's like China returning to its civilization state, China, you know, number one, like China's world dominating. That's like their map. And then NYT is just everything is stable and it's just horse trading in the current situation. <laughs> well, I think you've laid out a very logical chain here. And I have to thank you again. Um, you know, you've been very impactful on my thinking. And this conversation has been uh, an extension of that. So thank you. Thank you. It's great being here.